science you can use. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Welcome aboard. I'm Joe Schwartz. I direct McGill University's Office for Science and Society uh, with a mandate of demystifying science for the public and obviously for our students as well. And uh, Sunday afternoons, I sit here chatting with you about various aspects of science, talking about some of the latest news, some talking about some controversies. And uh, it's uh, my belief that chemistry, which is my background, is the science that is sort of the one that ties all of the others together. How do we define chemistry? It's the study of matter and the changes that matter undergoes. And uh, that basically encompasses everything from the manufacture of plastics to our digestion process to, to the medications that we take, the cosmetics that, that we use. My feeling that if you have an understanding of molecular structure and uh, of the kind of reactions that chemicals can engage in, you have a pretty good feel for what is reasonable and what is not in the world. You know, you would think that former American President Zachary Taylor and English novelist Jane Austen wouldn't have much in common. But there's one thing that they do have in common. Both have been the subject of theories that their deaths, commonly attributed to natural causes, were actually the result of, get this, poisoning by arsenic. Zachary Taylor died in 1850 just 16 months after being elected president. On a hard July 4th, he had just attended the groundbreaking ceremony for the Washington Monument. The Washington Monument, of course, is this large spire that uh, dominates the mall uh, in Washington. No, we're not talking about shopping mall. It is the mall between the Lincoln Monument and, uh, and the Capitol. And uh, the Washington Monument is smack in the center of it, uh, sort of uh, halfway in between, right next to the White House. It's a fascinating monument. Uh, it is the tallest uh, structure in Washington, and uh, by law, nothing can be constructed that is going to be taller than it. It has a very interesting top. It has a small pyramid of aluminum at the top because at the time it was believed that aluminum was the most precious metal. Anyway, so uh, Zachary Taylor officiated at the uh, groundbreaking ceremony for the Washington Monument, and then he headed back to the White House. And what did he do? It was a very hot day. He was warm. So he sat down, he drank a glass of cold milk, and he ate a bowl of cherries, a large bowl, apparently. By that evening, he began to feel unwell. By the next morning, he was experiencing bloody diarrhea. Diagnosed with acute gastroenteritis, or possibly cholera, according to the practice at the time, he was treated with mercury chloride, that's calomel in common language, with uh, syrup of ipecac and also with opium. Well, the calomel would have been at best useless, but mercury, of course, is also quite toxic. But uh, opium, well, that could have done something because opium can curb diarrhea. And ipecac induces vomiting. And uh, at that time, it was believed to rid the body of whatever was invading it. They weren't sure what kind of invaders caused disease, but expelling whatever was in the body was thought to be the right thing to do. There's also a good chance that the president would have been bled 
because that was a common treatment for all ailments at the time. So if anything, all these treatments hastened his death, and uh, that occurred just four days later. Posthumous diagnosis is notorious treacherous and is usually based on a lot of conjecture. Judging by the rather sudden onset of symptoms, some sort of food poisoning, either by bacteria such as salmonella in the cherries or in the unpasteurized milk, seems a possibility. However, author Clara Rising, after doing research on the president for a book she was writing about his life, introduced another theory. She claims that Taylor's symptoms are consistent with arsenic poisoning and that the president had plenty of enemies who would have profited from his death. Security in those days in the White House was not tight, and tainting some food with arsenic would not have been difficult. Although Taylor himself was a slave owner, he proposed that any new territories that joined the U.S. would be free states, that is, no slavery, a proposal that angered many Southerners. Rising made a case for her views in her book, The Taylor File, The Mysterious Death of a President, and managed to obtain an approval from Taylor's descendants for an exhumation and forensic autopsy. If arsenic were found, it would pretty well be an indication of poisoning because the body had not been embalmed, a process that in those days used arsenic, and it had been in a mausoleum, not buried in the ground, meaning no arsenic contamination from the soil. The autopsy, however, found no arsenic. But that did not satisfy Rising. She suggested that he may have been poisoned with cyanide or with mushrooms, neither of which would have left a trace after 140 years. If Rising's allegations were correct, Zachary Taylor would have been the first U.S. president assassinated. However, history, of course, bestows that dubious honor on Abraham Lincoln. Jane Austen was one of the most famous novelists of the 19th century, rivaling Charles Dickens in popularity. Her pride and prejudice and sense and sensibility were widely read, and there was great sadness when Austen died at the very young age of 41. Cause of death has been attributed either to underactive adrenal glands, such as one sees in Addison's disease, and that's an autoimmune disease, or maybe lupus or some form of cancer. As in the case of Zachary Taylor, a novelist has now suggested that arsenic killed Austin, albeit probably not by deliberate poisoning. Lindsay Ashford came across some of Jane Austen's letters and was alerted by a sentence, quote, I am considerably better now and am recovering my looks a little, which have been bad enough, black and white and every wrong color. Since Ashford was a crime writer and knew about poisons, she thought that the changes in pigmentation that Austin described smacked of arsenic poisoning. In the 18th and 19th centuries, various forms of arsenic were used as medicine. A 1% solution of potassium arsenite, known as Fowler's solution, was a common treatment for almost any ailment, despite being useless. Although there is no record of Austin having used this remedy, Ashford suggests that it is very likely since it used to be uh, for rheumatism, something that Austin complained of in her letters. Ashford received some support for the theory of arsenic poisoning from Sandra Tuppen, a curator at the British Library. She bases her argument on three eyeglasses of different strength that belong to Austin and are now displayed in the British Library. The argument is that Austin needed to get stronger and stronger glasses 
because she was suffering from cataracts. And guess what? Arsenic can cause cataracts. Seems like quite a stretch, since there are numerous reasons why people's eyesight can change. And unlike Zachary Taylor, we will never find out whether her body contains arsenic because Jane Austen will never be exhumed. She lies in peace under the floor of Winchester Cathedral. So now you know the connection between Zachary Taylor and Jane Austen. And when we come back, I'm uh, going to talk a little bit about essential oils, because everybody seems to be talking about them. You're listening to The Dr. Joe Show. We'll be right back. Life's Everyday Mystery Solved, The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. i got to tell you that I don't like walking through the ground floor of department stores. <laughs> Why? Uh, because of that cacophony of smells and coming from all of the counters. And there are the colognes, there are perfumes, etc. And uh, they, make my, they make my eyes water and I, I just I don't like it. It's, it's, it's annoying. But you know what? It does make me reflect on the chemistry of essential oils because those are the source of many of the compounds that float about in the air. In this case, the term essential means that the oil contains the essence of a plant's fragrance, not that it is in any way essential for its existence or for the existence of any other living organism. Essential oils are used to produce perfumes and to add scent to cosmetics and to cleaning products. They're also used in flavorings in foods, beverages, and uh, historically they have been used in, in all kinds of medical treatments. Well, you know, it's not surprising, of course, that plants contain lots of, of uh, aromatic compounds because plants are really ingenious little chemical factories. They synthesize a wide array of compounds that they need for their growth and for protection from insects, from fungi, and from predators. And some of these are highly toxic. Uh, coniine in hemlock or nicotine in tobacco, of course, are classic examples. While some, such as the various antioxidants that neutralize free radicals, can offer benefits to people who dine on plants. Many of the plant's compounds are volatile, some destined to attract pollinators, others to ward off bugs that have the intention of making a tasty meal of the leaves. It is the volatile chemicals that are regarded as the plant's essence and are the ones captured in the essential oil. In some cases, citrus fruits, for example, you can get the essential oil just by what we call mechanical expression. Basically, what you do is you squeeze the peel and the, the liquid comes out. Or you can use solvent extraction where you use a solvent like, like alcohol or hexane or liquid carbon dioxide, and you extract the plant material with this, and then you boil off the solvent and you're left behind with the essential oil. Uh, but the most common way to obtain a plant essential oil is a process we call distillation. And that's a very, very interesting process. Uh, according to some historical records, it, it goes back a couple of thousand years. Basically, distillation involves heating a mixture of substances, and because those substances can have different boiling points, they will uh, evaporate uh, depending on how you're heating the sample at different rates, and you can collect the uh, distillate. Uh, compounds with lower boiling point can be separated from ones that don't boil so easily. 
But one problem uh, when you're heating plant materials is that they tend to decompose at, at high temperatures. So there's a, a process known as steam distillation where you add water to the uh, plant uh, product and the mixture of steam and plant components distills at a lower temperature so you don't get as much um, decomposition. So essential oils are interesting. They have a very nice fragrance and, you know, you can uh, kind of sniff them before you go to bed at night and supposedly some of them, like lavender, will tend to induce sleep. However, there is another side of these essential oils, the pseudoscience side. And unfortunately, that often rears its ugly head. Depending on uh, which pseudo-expert you listen to, Either sniffing the right essential oil or rubbing them on the skin can support the immune system, enhance mood, promote sleep, cleanse the body's organs, boost the libido, ease breathing, promote alertness, treat kidney stones, oxygenate the blood, relieve pain, reduce anger, relieve constipation, and, needless to say, eliminate toxins. And if that isn't enough then uh, some of the essential oils are said to drive evil spirits out of the body and also to promote sexual stimulation. So there are a lot of claims, all kinds of things. There's one product called Clarity. It's promoted for getting your mind clear. You're supposed to put a few drops on your palm, rub your hands together clockwise three times, and that, quote, activates the electric properties of the oil and aligns your DNA. Well, of course... These oils have no electrical properties, and aligning your DNA is a totally meaningless uh, term. What is clear is that the sales of essential oils have become a multi-billion dollar industry, and it is dominated by two multi-level marketing companies in the U.S., Young Living and doTERRA. Young Living was founded by Gary Young, one of the most unsavory characters in the annals of pseudoscience. Before he passed away in 2018, Young had a history of making claims such as drinking only water and lemon juice to cure neurological deficits and detecting cancer via a blood test. He was unlucky enough to make that claim in front of an undercover investigator and ended up being arrested for practicing medicine without a license. A clinic he opened in Mexico diagnosed a reporter posing as a patient with cancer and offered an expensive detox program. The reporter had actually submitted a blood sample from his cat. When the ruse was revealed, the health educator who had made the diagnosis suggested that the cat must have leukemia, which of course was not the case. Another of his clinics in Utah treated a serious disease with essential oils. And uh, that clinic was run by a pediatrician who treated a woman for cancer that he believed was caused when she had been injected with some substance by a group of witches and gay doctors. You get the taste of the unsavory nature of this operation. But, of course, uh, just because an organization is run by some distasteful characters doesn't mean necessarily that the products are useless. The real problem is a lack of evidence for any of the claims. Oh yes, there are some studies that have suggested benefits. The scent of lavender may have a calming effect in some people and help with sleep. But in some others, it causes headaches. Peppermint oil 
may be of some use in indigestion, but most of the claims end up giving scientists indigestion. And in any case, with peppermint oil, it has to be ingested. Rubbing it on the tummy or sniffing it is not going to do anything. Some of the people the company has snared with its promises of wealth through multi-level marketing end up making a bevy of claims about essential oils helping with cancer, autism, Alzheimer's disease, mononucleosis, and arthritis. Seems to be an oil for any condition that potential customers have. And the, the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration in the U.S., of course, does not take kindly to these kind of false claims and has sent warning letters to these companies. And uh, most of them are, are have made changes in that they are more circumspect in, in sort of the words that they use in making the claims. But the problem is that most of these products are sold in the home environment by individual marketers, and who knows what on earth goes on there. Um, but research into aromatherapy may lead to some interesting applications. Dr. Alan Hirsch is a very, very reputable researcher in, in, in smells, and he has measured the penile blood flow in 31 male volunteers who were either wearing scented masks or uh, masks that had no odor. And the greatest increase in blood flow was seen with the combined odor of lavender and pumpkin pie. Hirsch has also searched unsuccessfully for odors that can decrease penile blood flow uh, so that these can be used to treat sexual deviance, but nothing there so far. Anyway, it's very interesting that, uh, you know, that people are resorting to essential oils and they may get some pleasant smells out of it, but it, when it comes to curing disease... I think you have to look elsewhere. You're listening to The Dr. Joe Show, and we'll be back. And I'm going to tell you about why I like Breaking Bad. Science you can use. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. As you might expect, I like Breaking Bad. That's the highly rated TV show about a high school chemistry teacher who is diagnosed with cancer and turns to making crystal meth to pay for his treatment and to secure his family's future. While Walter White's goal is reprehensible, at least he is not portrayed like some bumbling, crazed scientist, which is far too common an occurrence on TV. This chemist knows that what he's doing is wrong, but still wants to do it right. His meth is going to be pure. No random mixing of chemicals here, no lab work without proper safety equipment. No fires, no explosions. Good drama with some good chemistry. But this is fiction. In real life, meth cooks rarely have proper chemical training, and they blow themselves up with great frequency. And that frequency is increasing with the increasing popularity of the shake-and-bake method for making crystal meth. Methamphetamine destroys lives in more ways than one. It's addictive and can cause a host of ailments, ranging from blurred vision to heart attacks. There's an association with anxiety, psychosis, violent behavior, and suicide. This is one nasty compound. And its nastiness extends to the criminals who try to make it. Not only is there a risk of explosion, 
clandestine chemists who basically just follow recipes expose themselves to various toxic substances. Problems have increased as the shake-and-bake method has taken off. This requires no laboratory equipment, and the technique is pretty simple. Often called the one-pot method, it involves placing the ingredients in a two-liter soda bottle and shaking. Unfortunately, the ingredients, cold packs, lye, carburetor fluid, sulfuric acid, salt, batteries, and pseudoephedrine, these things are not too hard to come by. But this noxious brew, even in the hands of a knowledgeable chemist, can blow up, searing flesh and causing permanent disfigurement and even death. One of the key ingredients is lithium, which is isolated from batteries. It is needed in the key reaction to convert pseudoephedrine to methamphetamine, but also reacts with water, which is also used in the reaction to form hydrogen gas. This is an undesired byproduct and has to be released by loosening the cap. If this is not done properly, air enters and the oxygen-hydrogen mixture ignites and sets fire to the carburetor fluid. You now have either a blowtorch or a bomb. Both are bad. How bad? In some hospitals in the U.S., most active meth states, a third of the patients in burn units are victims of meth accidents. They are uninsured and treatment costs 6000 a day. So there's a little view behind the scenes of Breaking Bad. Unfortunately, in real life, the meth industry is very, very large, and uh, you don't want to run afoul of the people who are making the meth and selling it on the street, uh, because they are not kind people. Have you ever wondered why people get hungry an hour after eating Chinese food? Allegations that hunger surfaces an hour after eating Chinese food have long been bandied about. This is anecdotal stuff, and as far as I know, nobody's ever done a study to determine if this is actually true. To start with, not all Chinese meals are alike. American Chinese food with its bevy of egg rolls, chow mein, and spare ribs is very different from what is consumed in China. Even in China, there are large geographic differences with a wide range of meat consumption and rice consumption being popular in some regions, noodles are popular in others. The lack of satiety accusation is usually aimed at American Chinese food, with monosodium glutamate, that is MSG, often targeted as a culprit. There's no evidence whatsoever that MSG interferes with satiety. Indeed, if anything, it may have the opposite effect. Proteins, which break down during metabolism to amino acids, have been shown to decrease ghrelin, the appetite-stimulating hormone, and to boost leptin, the hormone that curbs appetite. MSG is the sodium salt of glutamic acid, a common amino acid, and could conceivably play a role in increasing leptin levels. In general, high-protein foods, Greek yogurt being an example, have been shown to have a high satiety value. Chinese meals tend to be rather low in protein as well as in fiber, which also seems to decrease hunger. Fiber is the indigestible component of grains, vegetables, and fruits, and fills the stomach before it is eliminated, and a full stomach decreases the release of ghrelin. 
pectin in apples, beta-glucan in old bran, are forms of soluble fiber that have been shown to increase time before hunger appears. There is also the suggestion that Western diets often contain potatoes, which have a very high satiety value. And by comparison, Chinese meals, which do not feature potatoes, therefore leave you feeling hungry. The satiety value of various foods has actually been investigated by researchers at the University of Sydney in Australia. Volunteers consumed a variety of foods, each containing about 240 calories, and then every 15 minutes reported their feelings of hunger. White bread was chosen as a standard and assigned a satiety index of 100, with other foods being evaluated on whether they provoke less or more hunger than the standard. In general, foods that rank high, meaning they satisfy hunger for a long time, are foods with high protein, water, or fiber content. Boiled potatoes turn out to have the highest SI, followed by oatmeal, oranges, and apples. As a class, fruits have the highest SI, and bakery products such as croissants and donuts have the lowest. Eggs, steak, brown pasta, popcorn, and baked beans are also satisfying. Interestingly, fat content correlates negatively with satiety. It should be pointed out, though, this is very important to remember, that the satiety index is just a measure of the onset of hunger, and it does not relate to the nutritional quality of, of these foods. But I think the point to remember here is that while there may be some truth to the notion that Chinese food does leave you hungry, for all the reasons that I just mentioned, monosodium glutamate or MSG is not a role player in this uh, scenario. Uh, MSG, it is true, can in very, very uh, small percentage of people give rise to something that has been probably inappropriate called Chinese restaurant syndrome, uh, which uh, gives you sort of a flushing in the face and sometimes pain in the chest and a headache, not nice symptoms, but they very quickly fade away. And people who have this problem just learn not to eat food that contains monosodium glutamate. But it's also important to remember that monosodium glutamate or MSG is naturally occurring. And if you like Parmesan cheese, for example, well, then you do like glutamic acid because it is very rich in it. And that's one of the reasons that it makes everything taste good. Okay, you're listening to the Dr. Joe Show. And uh, we're going to take our break and we'll be back and uh, we'll talk about, you know what, worms. Why not? Your source when you need answers. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. So I said I was going to talk to you about worms. Yeah, 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 worms, as well as some other assorted parasites. Uh, why am I talking about this? Because some researchers are certainly looking deeply into the increased incidence of allergies. An allergy is basically a mistake made by the body's immune system. Instead of targeting disease-causing microbes, immune cells unleash their chemical weaponry against a substance they mistakenly perceive to be harmful. That innocent bystander may be found in pollen, in food, or in various consumer items ranging from jewelry to fabrics. Now, why does this happen? 
and why is it happening with greater frequency, particularly in the Western world? The rapid rise in allergies and their particular geographic distribution suggest that there may be some, exper- some environmental factor at play. Maybe, as some suggest, our early life is just too clean. Children are not exposed to as many bacteria or as many viruses as in the past, and as a result, their immune system doesn't get the training it needs to battle these invaders. Instead, the immature immune system responds to some harmless substance and attempts to expel it by triggering sneezing, coughing, and tearing. All this makes for an intriguing little story, but is there any evidence to support it? Well, surprisingly, there is some. The first clue is that in countries where infection by parasitic worms is common, the incidence of allergies is low, but it rises when children are treated for parasites. A study of more than 2,800 school children in Ecuador showed that allergies were less prevalent among those infected with worms, and a study in Gabon indicated an increase in allergies among children treated with a worm-killing medication. It is as if these parasites somehow managed to tune down the immune system to prevent themselves from being expelled, and this modulation of immune activity also reduces the chance of reaction to other substances. Obviously, there's great interest in any substance the parasites may release to allow the immune system to tolerate them. Researchers at the University of Strathclyde in Scotland have taken the first step towards unraveling this mystery by showing that, at least in the laboratory, extracts of worms can disarm mast cells, a type of white blood cell that initiates an allergic reaction through the release of histamine. The hope is that in the future, some sort of worm extract can be used to trick the immune system into reacting as if it were accommodating a parasite. But the worm saga is not the only one to boost the so-called hygiene hypothesis. Children who grow up on farms have a smaller chance of developing allergies than city kids, perhaps due to greater exposure to viruses and bacteria found in dirt and in animal feces. There also may be an association between low risk of allergies and frequent contact with a cow during the first year of life, as well as with consuming unpasteurized milk. And there's more. Swedish researchers discovered a greater range of microbes in the gut of children in Estonia, where allergy rates are low, than in Sweden, where they are high. An Italian researcher has found that among non-European immigrants who are treated for allergies at a hospital in Milan, 84% never had symptoms before coming to Europe. Although not quite a smoking gun, there seems to be some compelling evidence to suggest that immune function is influenced by environmental factors early in life. One of the most interesting examples to explore in terms of early influence is that of peanut allergy, a truly terrifying condition, especially considering that as little as a quarter of a milligram of peanut protein can cause a reaction. In North America and Britain, there are peanut-free schools and EpiPens to be used in case of accidental peanut exposure. These are common. 
Health authorities in Canada, U.S., and the U.K. have concluded that peanut protein may be one of the prime targets of a what we'll call a bored Western immune system. And the safest bet is to withhold foods containing peanuts until the age of three. But in Israel, a country with a Western lifestyle, peanut allergy is curiously uncommon. Is it because Israeli parents are so much better at preventing their children from being exposed to peanuts early in life? No, quite the opposite. One of the most popular snacks in Israel is bamba, a peanut-flavored corn puff, often one of the first solid foods given to infants because it offers relief from teething and because parents think that it is a healthy snack due to fortification with vitamins. In actual fact, it is high in fat and the vitamins are insignificant. But can bamba protect against peanut allergy? Pediatric allergist Gideon Lack of King's College in London and a team of Israeli researchers uh, aim to find this out. They have a project called LEAP, Learning About Peanut Allergies. They've enlisted 600 babies, half of whom are being fed bamba and other peanut snacks three times a week, while the other half get no peanuts at all. By the time these children reach school age, bamba protection, if it exists, should be evident. If a peanut allergy cannot be prevented, can the severity of the reaction be reduced? Experiments with allergy shots, which work for hay fever and some other allergies, have been unsuccessful. But attempts at boosting tolerance by the use of small oral doses is more promising. In one study, children who had reactions to traces of peanuts were eventually able to consume up to 13 nuts at a time after oral tolerance therapy. The goal is not to convert them into peanut guzzlers, but to prevent the chance of a catastrophic reaction on accidental exposure. Where all of this will lead, no one knows, uh, but worm-fortified bamba may be an idea whose time has come. And uh, this, of course, is an evolving story because uh, the standard advice that always used to be given here is that you've got to keep young kids away from peanuts uh, you know, for a long time. I think that is slowly being modified, and it turns out that there just may be uh, a key period in life. Of course, it remains to be determined exactly when that is, perhaps sometime between six months and, and a year, where exposure to a potential allergen such as peanuts uh, can resolve problems or, or prevent problems. But uh, we're really waiting to see what else is going to happen. But uh, this whole hygiene hypothesis is an interesting area of, of research. And, you know, I mentioned about cows and how kids on farm being exposed to cows uh, have fewer allergies. Believe it or not, when I was young in Hungary, my parents bought me a cow. <laughs> uh I didn't actually have it in my room. Uh, the cow stayed on the farm, but it was ours. And uh, every day, someone went to get milk, fresh milk from my cow. That's what I drank. Nevertheless, I have a fish allergy. So the cow did not prevent that. That is it. We have run smack out of time. But I hope you've learned a little bit today about essential oils, about uh, some of the chemistry and production of uh, crystal meth, about the role of worms in uh, in allergies. So hopefully you are more knowledgeable than you were an hour ago. And that's it. Smack out of time, but we'll be back with you same time, same station next week. Until then, I'm Joe Schwartz, hoping all the chemistry in life comes out just right. <laughs>